0: Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here with Coach Connor. It's easy to assume that bike races are won by the fastest rider. However, at both the professional and local level, the race is often won by the best poker player. It's true that you need to be a strong rider, but physiology only buys you a seat at the table. Success means playing the hand that's dealt to you, and factors like course knowledge, teamwork, hydration, and others determine how strong that hand is. However, the winner isn't always the rightest with the strongest hand. It's the one who plays theirs best. Today, we have Alex Howes and Kiel Reinen, two experienced world tour players turned gravel riders to give us unique insight into how the game is played. They'll share learnings and funny stories that come from a full career racing in Europe and the U.S. Joining Howes and Reinen, we'll hear from coaches Inigo San Milan of UAE Team Emirates, Janice Moosen of Train to Win Coaching, and Jeff Winkler of Winkler Coaching, as well as pro cyclist Peter Vetchcock. So
1: get ready to read the table and let's make you fast. Hey, Fast Talk listeners, this is Trevor Connor. Wouldn't it be cool to decide what Rob and I are going to chat about on an upcoming show? Or how about we answer a question on polarized training you're dying to know? What about a 30-minute Zoom call with Rob or me on your favorite sports endurance topic? This is all possible when you become a Fast Talk Patreon member. We have four monthly membership levels to fit your level of support. If you enjoy Fast Talk, help us stay independent and dishing out your favorite sports science topic by becoming a Fast Talk Patreon member. You can join us at patreon.com slash Podcast. Well, welcome, guys. Great to have you on the show again. This should be a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us back.
1: So we're going to talk about something that you guys know well, and this should be a lot of fun. So we're going to talk a little bit about race strategy, but I'm going to kick it off with uh, an analogy to give us a little context to talk about race strategy, this was something that was told to me a long time ago by a very experienced rider that, that really stuck with me on how to think about race strategy. He said, training and getting strong doesn't win races. He said, bike racing is like a poker game and strength, training, all that does is buy you a seat at the table. But once you're at the table, then you got to play the game. And that is the strategy side. So this notion that a lot of riders have that I just get really strong and then I win every race, it doesn't work that way. Getting really strong just puts you in the race. Now you have to figure out how to race it. I
3: think that's a good analogy. I would argue that training just gets you better cards, right? I mean, there's definitely people who show up to the table and they got a hand like a foot, you know. Doesn't matter what, what they do. They, um, the cards ain't going to win them nothing. But, you know... Then you have people who always seem to have aces up their sleeves and it doesn't matter how, how sneaky or how well they bluff, you know, when they throw those aces down, it works out pretty well. But no, I do think it is a good analogy. Keel, how are your hands? Do you have good hands out there?
2: <laughs> I think the the most satisfying races in my career when I reflect back are the ones where I was dealt a, a crappy hand, right? For whatever reason, uh, lack of fitness, circumstances, injury, whatever it was, and still pulled out a good result, or maybe perhaps it wasn't me individually; it was the team. Right? We we punched above our weight on that given day for the the cards we were dealt, and it's compounded that the idea of like playing poker to sort of extrapolate on that. The you're doing it while you're running a marathon too. So you got you got to make good decisions and make your moves and and your bluffs and put your chips down while you're sort of you know in a compromised state of mind, and that's where training again can, you know, make a difference. If you can, you know, train yourself up to a level where you can stay calm in those stressful situations and, you know, be a little less redlined. you might make a better decision.
1: So on that note, let's talk about the cards. So sticking with this analogy, what are the cards? What do you consider an ace in the hole and what, what's a bad hand?
2: I would say a good sprint.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: good. yeah, definitely an ace. I was thinking also knowing the course, right? Like knowing that that last 20K um, of the race or maybe knowing a really key point of the the race, that sort of hometown advantage. So we see that a lot when riders race on their home turf. They, they sort of are up a level. They're up a notch. And we attribute that to lots of things. But again, I think just local knowledge makes a huge difference. Staying with the analogy here you know what cards the other guys have yeah peeking at the other hands
3: (laughs) that helps a lot uh you know you know who has a good sprint you know who who doesn't have a sprint you get to begin to understand how they need to play the race that doesn't always mean it's going to work out in your favor but we can start to look for chinks in the armor there and um kind of dream up potential scenarios where you know you could get the upper hand
0: now in regard to knowledge of other riders, is this something that you guys are just learning throughout your years in the Peloton? Is it something that your team is actively kind of educating and informing you on? How do you gain that knowledge about everyone else?
2: It comes up in team meetings, certainly, and it's talked about, you know, what what teams are going to do what with what riders on any given day. Um, and, and a lot of riders on the team are training with other riders from other teams, so there's a little bit of inside knowledge there, but I will say that for me at least, it was mostly an individual pursuit, kind of gathering that knowledge uh, over time. You're looking for really small tells, like you know, Alex has ridden enough miles behind me; he can tell you when I'm on the limit. Without you know, just from body language, he might pick up on on signals that other riders who haven't ridden with me as much you know wouldn't. So, just spending time in the peloton is is definitely the way to collect that knowledge.
0: And it sounds like, though, it's something that maybe you need to have open eyes to, right? If you're just riding in the peloton next to people and you're not really paying attention, you might not gain that knowledge. But by trying to observe,
3: you know, every mile that you're out on that road, maybe you can gather it a little bit more quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And like, say you're in a breakaway with somebody, right? And every time there's an acceleration, somebody's having like, they're always like a couple bike lengths off trying to come back up. But every time they pull through, they pull through freaking hard, you know. It's like, okay, that's a person I want to be off the front with. I don't know how to get off the front with them. But if I can get away with them, hopefully they can drag me around and then I can kick the butt at the end. Because they can't. don't seem to have any acceleration there. But yeah, just little tells like that. And it, it's complicated, you know. Like, say you're in a breakaway with eight riders. It's difficult to pay attention to eight riders, you know, in every... You know, for, for every acceleration or every every corner, who's breaking more through the corners? Who's you know sitting up more? It's a pretty intricate game, and the more, but the more you play it, the better you get. I mean, there's really only one good way to get a nose for racing tactics, and that's racing. You know, you have you have to be in it. I mean, you can watch it on TV, but as Kiel was saying, you need to be able to make those decisions on the fly when your heart rate's at, sitting at one eighty.
1: So how much can you bluff? Can you, with your body language, convince people that you're in a, a different place from where you're at? And how much do you want to do that? And I'll, I'll kick this off by saying, you know, I, I was always a breakaway rider. And often what I would do in a breakaway is what I called the, the 200 watts shoulder rock, which is even if I wasn't at my limit, I'd rock a little more than... I normally would just to make everybody on the, the breakaway think that I'm struggling more than I actually am. So nobody's watching me. Do you guys pull things like that? Try to make it look like you're not hurting when you are or, or vice versa. Like I did try to make it sometimes look like you're hurting when you aren't.
2: Yeah, certainly. I mean, usually I'm doing it with my, my efforts. So like if I'm, if I'm really trying to conserve when I'm pulling through, I might make it seem like I'm struggling to hold the pace a little bit or, or pull off a little bit earlier than some of the riders if I want the breakaway to last, but ultimately fail because it's a team tactic, I might do the reverse and try and really, you know, control some of the other riders. The other thing is that those conversations that happen within the Peloton or the breakaway are really important, right? There's a lot of mind games. And the, the first thing I'll do when I see, like, let's let's pretend we've got a breakaway of, you know, eight, 10 guys. The first things I'm looking for, are who's the local guy? Because that's who I want to follow on the descent. You know, potentially anyway. Yep. Depends on the rider, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> probably he knows the descent. Yeah. And if he's any good, that's the guy to fall on the descent. And maybe in the last 20K, if he starts attacking on, you know, terrain that matters, then I'm looking for who's under the most pressure for a win. Is there a team that's been at the, you know, this race and had no wins and were two and a half weeks in and they're under immense pressure from their director in the team meeting? That guy is going to make bad decisions. Who's the young gun who, is fresh to this you know race or you know new team or you know new environment and he wants to impress so he can be manipulated you know i can convince him to work when he shouldn't even if his director's yelling in his ear telling him take it easy take it easy i can i can tell him we gotta we gotta go now or the peloton's gonna catch us i can i can squeeze a little bit more out of him next is, do you have any friends in there? Is Alex there? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like who you're going to buddy up with and make sure you're on the same page with for later, right? Because you're already playing, you're playing your, your hand of poker once that breakaway establishes, but you're going to play another hand in another 150 K. So there's multiple hands to keep track of. And you kind of have your energy bank for like the bulk of that day. And then you've got your energy bank for the last, you know, 20 K of the race. And they're, they're in some senses separated. And so Yeah, the first thing I'm doing in that group is just sort of analyzing each rider and and what I can use them for.
1: So do you guys have any good examples of times where you didn't necessarily have the best hand, but you played it really well? I don't think either one of
3: us ever had good hands. Yeah,
2: yeah. (laughs) 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 I bluffed every time. Pretty Uh, mediocre. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think Nationals 2012 stands out as like uh, probably some of the worst legs I've ever had on a bike I was coming back from being sick or something. Yeah, I think I was coming back from being sick. And the like. The only reason I had a shot was in the very first couple of K, a group of 25 of us rolled off the front. And it wasn't a hard breakaway to make. It wasn't a big fight. It was just like somebody opened the wheel on the local circuits, and I was on the right side of the split. And I'd seen that happen before at national. So like, I was at the front because I knew it was a possibility. Mm-hmm. And then once that group of 25 went it turned out that slipstream had like eight guys in it. And so they just started steamrolling and nobody had to do any work. So I got got a free ride in that group for like 150 K and the gap between the field and that group was like just a stable two minutes the whole time. So everybody was burning matches. And because I had really bad legs, I was totally willing to risk losing to win. I had no other cards to play, right? Like the only card I had was the bluff. And so I didn't make a single attack. I followed a couple of moves late. I got dropped on the last climb and the guy got dropped with. I can't remember who I got dropped with, but whoever I got dropped with dragged us back by himself because I couldn't help. Like it wasn't that I was bluffing in that case. Like I just couldn't physically help. And so it it saved me because he did all the work. And so it it was a good play. But again, it was a big risk. But, of course, I had to I had to take the risk because, like, what's the alternative, right? If you don't have the bullets to spend, then, you know, there's no choice. So he dragged us all the way back to that group. And then there was a front group of, like, five off that. And, again, there were some team tactics at play. And eventually that group of five, somebody in there wasn't pulling, and so they sat up. And we miraculously caught them. Like, they had, like, three minutes on our group, and we caught them with half a lap to go. And and then I I got third in the sprint. Cause there was no sprinters left in there or not many anyway. And so it was like, it was such a better result than I deserved for the legs I had, but you know, tactically it played out really well. And sometimes not having the choice is like the best tactic, right? Like when you're, when you do have a bad day, you can, you can't have a really good result because you're forced to be conservative.
0: Yeah. It helps you yep. commit. Right. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Just
2: hang on for dear life was that your timmy
1: one yeah 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 i had a a similar experience first pro race i ever won i was in a breakaway with another rider and i had horrible legs and he knew it so he was really driving us and just figured he was gonna drop me there was there was a climb about 5k from the finish and he figured he was gonna drop me on the climb and we hit that climb i was suffering but i'm like let's see if I can, I can bluff him and, and make him just stay with me up the climb. So we got to the bottom and I hit it really hard just to try to convince him I had better legs than I did. And he told me later, it surprised him so much because he thought I was toast that he didn't know how to react and he let me go and I, I ended up dropping him on the climb by accident. And that's why I won the race.
2: <laughs> this is one of the cool things about cycling, though, right? It's People always look at, you know, like the Tour de France. And they're like, whoa, these guys are on a totally different planet. You know, the numbers they're doing are crazy. It, it doesn't really matter if the race happens at, you know, 10K an hour faster, average or not. It's the same process, right? Like that same poker game is getting played out, whether you're a Cat 5 racer or a World Tour racer. And that's part of what makes the sport sort of so intriguing for people to participate in—is you get to experience that right away.
1: Sometimes you can actually win with a bad hand. Let's hear from pro Peter Vakoc, who points out that the biggest mistake can sometimes be not playing the hand you have.
4: The biggest mistake usually is just to to be afraid to to go for the attack, just just thinking that uh, that others are are better than then you are and then it's not uh, not a good moment and just like waiting waiting and then uh then not having an an opportunity so, so i think uh, you always have to believe that if you suffer that uh, the others are, are suffering as well and then uh, a lot of think uh, people have the the same thoughts at the at the same moment so to so just uh yeah just trying it uh, even though you you might not not think uh, uh it's it's a good moment because uh Nowadays, you can you can see uh, a lot of races are won from quite far, and uh, I think that's that's something that many people don't uh, don't realize that if they if they don't try it uh, and don't try it early enough, then uh, uh, they will not have the the chance, and uh, they just cannot do anything.
1: So, guys, we we've talked a bit about how you play this individually, but let's talk about some team tactics here. So. There's also that that poker game where you're playing it as a team. What are the, some of the things that, that come to mind in terms of having a good hand, having a bad hand, and, and how you play that hand as a team?
2: Yeah, I mean, knowing you know at the beginning of the day whether you have sort of a top-tier rider or second-tier rider on the team will dictate a lot of your strategy. But um, the, the scenario that comes to mind first for me and one that I think a lot of viewers don't kind of get to witness is – on a sprint stage or, uh, at a classic, I'm thinking of tour of Flanders. Um, there's maybe three, four riders that can win that race. And so those teams all know at some point they're going to, they're going to pull that day, but they don't want to use their resources too early. So they start looking at the other teams who have a shot at winning and say, well, you got to pull first or we're not going to pull until you pull, or we'll give you one guy, but you got to use two. And when that occurs there's a lot of communication and you know maybe you'll see on tv riders like Alex and I going back to the director car back to the front back to the director car and we're having these negotiations so we'll go back there to our director and say look quick steps only going to pull if we put a guy in but you know visma said they're not going to put a guy in yet uh, they're going to wait until the first feed zone what do you want to do and then they'll say well i don't want to pull if quick steps not pulling so they got to give two guys and, and we'll give one guy. So then you go back to quick step, you know, at the front and you talk to one of their old guys because it's always the old guys making the negotiations. And, and you say to him, look, you know, I'm in a tough spot here. Like my director's saying, we can only pull if you put two, what do you think? And he's going, all right, I got to talk to my director. He goes back to his, direct, you know, and there's just like 30 minute long negotiation that occurs while the race is unfolding. And during this time, you know, that gap to the breakaway sometimes is just like, growing and growing and growing and growing and growing and then all of a sudden you realize if we don't step on the gas we're, we're like it's over and sometimes you miscalculate and other times the teams kind of go all right well we all blocked and we all lost like we got to get to the front and just use up all of our chips and that negotiation part you know just it doesn't get captured very well the place where it gets really sticky though is in stage
3: races right where you have that neg- negotiation happens early on in the race and early on one team you know they get the upper hand they have the better sprinter or maybe the you know maybe they don't but they totally flick the other guys and they're like yeah we're only putting one in and the other team had three in and so you know a week in all these other teams are like hey man you guys totally screwed us over on day two and you won the race so now it's all on you and they're like well we don't have the team we we have three you know three riders already crashed out you know we need help here and like no sorry you know this is on you guys you guys screwed us over on this day and then it, but it just keeps layering and it's not just day to day in a stage race i mean we can you can look over the course of a season you know and like certain teams will have beefs with other teams and it's like yeah we're not helping unless they you know put in double riders and you know it gets pretty personal pretty fast i think there's
2: a little there's like ptsd too you know like as a rider especially those like classics where, you know, like I know I'm going to be riding the front at some point, the days when, yeah, we, we sort of like didn't play our hand and we won the race, you know, you're going to like, you're gonna to have to pay that back. At some There's point. retribution. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's a really important point that you have to remember. You're usually racing the same people every weekend, whether you're pro or, or just racing locally. And people remember things. And and, and I had a, a mentor who was a really good race strategist. And he said if he showed up to a race and it wasn't his course or he was having a bad day, he would spend the day trying to help out some other guys. Because he, he said, they'll remember. And the day I'm having a really good day, they're going to say, hey, you help me out. We're going to be here for you. You know, conversely, uh, and I'm sure you guys can talk a lot about this, if you do something that really screws over other teams in a race, they're gonna remember and they're gonna find ways to pay you back.
2: Yeah, you can only play that that hand so many times. Honestly, the 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 goodwill aspect
3: is is also not seen a lot and you know, from, from the T V cameras. I mean, if you have a rider who who's like losing the wheel in the group and okay, it's illegal, but they give you a little hand sling, like you know who you know who that is, and you're going to remember that for the next 10 years. <laughs> you're yeah. like, "Oh yeah, that, you know, that guy's never going to leave me hanging, you know, And it, it means, you know, might not be your best friend, but you're probably not going to chop him going into the, you know, into a technical downhill because you're like, all right, he'll help me get around if need be. But then you have that person that loses the wheel and doesn't help you out, and for the next 10 years, going into every downhill. You're like, no way, like 0% chance you're going to be in front of me. And
2: that gets pretty sticky. This can happen <laughs> between writers and directors too, right? Like I can think of some days where I was, you know, dropped for whatever reason, you know, way too early and mostly because of legs. Uh, and
5: you're like, you <laughs> bad, know, you're with like bad, two other guys. Bad hand. You know, <laughs> bad, bad, hand, hand. <laughs> bad
2: hand. And I, I can remember one in particular, you know, like a Tour de Swiss stage where it was just like an uphill start. I I think I'd crashed or something. So I was just on a rough day. And there was another EF rider with me. And that director, that second director stayed with us because I think EF had lost a bunch of riders that race. And so he was just trying to make sure his guy made it through. And, you know, of course, if you're a director in that position, you're going to help the other guy out too. You know, like you're going to make sure he's got bottles and food and you're going to tell him information like, Hey, this is the time gap. This is the you know, like, and when we think of help, I don't mean like holding onto the car. I mean, like just the morale boost from someone telling you, hey, you've still got 10 minutes to to time cut, like you're looking okay, or, you know, this is what's happening up front and this is the gap. And, you know, there's one more climb left and I'll have gels at the top of the climb kind of thing. That can be a huge boost and, and can get you through the stage. So there, again, like that's a play that that director can make. He can say, all right, I know if I take care of this, you know, Trek guy, that maybe tomorrow, if the situation is reversed, the, the Trek car is going to take care of my guy.
1: So let's translate this to most of our listeners here who are going to be in races but don't have a team director's car behind them. They're just, just in the, the race. And let's say they're on a team, they, they've got a rider who could potentially win. How do you play this game in that scenario? How do you negotiate with the other teams? What should you be doing? What shouldn't you be doing? Overall, how do you play the game? And I get it's very different if this is a, a crit versus some big hilly road race, but are there any general rules? If you know you got a guy who can
2: win, probably the, the best thing you can do is make sure that no one else thinks that.
1: <laughs> so how do you do that?
2: Yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to just
3: highlighting the benefits to the other riders, right? Like you guys should work because if this breakaway goes away, none of us have an opportunity, Right. If your team has a good sprinter as well, you know, sprints are a total mess. It could go either direction. Like there's, there's benefit to that. Also highlighting your potential weaknesses if you need help. Right. It's like, look, we're, you know, we're already down two riders here. Like we need help. Like we can't do this all on our own, but just helping other riders around you sort of see the situation you want them to see, if that makes sense. Which involves a little bit of talking, right? And I think one thing when you're trying to impart a little bit of empathy is not screaming at people in a race. Like if you if you talk to people in a calm manner, maybe even a little chipper, you know, like and just trying to, to help them see what's going on, that goes a long ways versus the standard uh you know, cat three model of just like you guys are idiots. You're going to lose. Like, What are you doing? <laughs> like, hold your line. Like, Yeah, I think there's a lot of screaming. There's a lot of screaming. There doesn't have to be screaming, you know. You got to talk loud enough for them to hear. But
2: I think also that you don't want to close the door on, on possibilities, right? So like making sure those other riders see how many possibilities there are. So an example being if you have a really strong team with a guy who can win, if you go to the front straight away, show a force start mowing back the breakaway and you know the team's set up there all six riders the leader right behind them and you look like the tour de france leaders you know on stage 20 you're leaving no room for those other riders to think like what if you know what if this scenario what if that scenario like you've taken out 90 percent of the scenarios and so there's not their imaginations can't can't run with you know what may or may not happen which is sometimes a good thing right especially if
3: You
2: know, like sometimes you want to be the 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 iron fist. Yeah. Yeah. If you're bluffing, like, like, let's say you don't have the strength and you're trying to show the other teams like, look how strong we are so that they don't attack you. Yeah, that's
3: yeah. But then there's a like if you unless you're, you know, ready to be on the front all day, you don't you don't necessarily want to hit the front on the second lap of a crit, you know, with all five or. 25 riders. I don't know how many you're allowed to have in (laughs) categorized racing. (laughs) Sometimes it feels like 25.
1: but There are certainly alternatives to yelling at other riders. Let's hear from coach Jeff Winkler about the value at any level of watching and learning to read the field. That's a a
6: really challenging thing. Um, And, I mean, basically it's, I mean, some might say it's impossible from the sideline. But the way that I try to do it as a coach who's not there at the moment is to force the athlete to explain what they were thinking during points in the race. Um, And often what that does is highlight the fact that they don't think that way in the race. Like often the answer is, "Well, well, I don't know, you know, and I'm going down this path because the way you learn to read a race is by compiling enough data in your own sort of personal experience database that you start to see patterns, right? You, you recognize them without maybe noting them rationally, like, oh, this guy 30 minutes ago was pedaling smoothly and now he's not, or collectively the group is now reacting to break uh, attempts at a breakaway much slower than it was in the first hour, you know, but those are the kinds of things that inform your racecraft in a sort of semi-intuitive way after you've ac- accumulated enough of them. But the problem is for many racers is they think that process is going to happen just by virtue of the number of starts. And that's not how it works. You actually have to be engaged through the race and seeing things that happen, what are the outcomes and all the variations of them before it becomes semi-intuitive. If you're not mentally engaged in every single race that you do, you you aren't accumulating any experience. And so, for for the most part, that's the process. Again, very hard because you you're not there at the moment uh, you know, of contact when you need to say, "Hey, are you doing this? Are you doing this?" Which brings me to an interesting. Uh, Side note is uh, I was working with uh, a junior team of of mountain bikers when COVID hit and we couldn't really initially ride as a group. And so I got us on to Zwift and we started doing Zwift races together with Discord. So you had real time audio. And so I was actually able to be in these races with them. And at the point of contact, Mm. we could converse about what was happening. And it was, in my mind, revolutionary because there's no other way for the coach to have that kind of level of connection as it unfolds kind of thing. So they could be like, hey, I'm stuck in this group and these two guys aren't working. What should I do? Should I try to bridge or should I just sit in or, you know, those things? You can't do that as a race director or coach on the sideline unless you're at the World Tour level. Hey
0: listeners, we have exciting news to share from Hit Science, the leaders in high-intensity interval training. Right now, Hit Science is offering a free course for coaches called The Science and Application of Endurance Training Using AI Platforms. This course includes Smart Coach AI and Hit Science-driven workout suggestions for triathlon, running, and cycling events. Visit hitscience.com and enter the free course through the pop-up window.
1: Another question here, Uh, I'm sure I'm going to get the song wrong, but there's the the login song about playing poker. You got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them? Thank you. That was the line I was looking for. So before we got on Mike here, you kind of joked, well, of course, race strategy is you go with every single move and you go with the first attack in the race. And I know that was joking. And I will tell you, I used to coach a team up in Toronto and it would drive me nuts because there were certain guys on the team that... You know, these races were always flat. There'd be 50, 60 attacks before the winning move finally went. And we had guys on the team that would go with the first move, the second move, the third move. They'd go with every single move until they blew up. And then three moves later, the winning move would go and they would never be in the winning move. As much as I would tell them, stop going with the first move. They just couldn't stop. So how do you play that? How do you know when to say, I'm not going with that move. That's not the right hand to play but waiting and knowing when to go with the right move to maximize your chance of getting into that that breakaway and, and be in the game
3: uh i wish i could tell you honestly <laughs> it's, it's, it's a it's a i mean it is an art you know it's tricky the number of times i've been with like neopro riders and just been like so frustrated you know because just like you say they go with every single move and except for the one that goes and they sit on the bus and they and you're pissed off and they're pissed off and everybody's pissed off and they're like, well, I don't know how, which one to go with. And it's like, well, just go with the good one. You idiot. You know, <laughs> so, like, like, Why'd you go with all the bad ones? And it's like, well, you never know. It's like, well, yeah, you do. You just go with the good one. Like, it's not that hard. Like, you know, four days in a row, like I'll jump once, you know, and you jump a hundred thousand times and I'm in four breakways and you're in none. I don't know what to tell you. It's tricky. <laughs> it
2: reminds me of chemistry, right? Where it's like, okay, here's, here's the equations. Here's how it all works. And then every time you like go in to make the calculation, it's like, oh, but that one's an exception. Oh, but that there's an exception here. Uh, there's an exception to that rule over here. And if you try to describe to someone how to feel out which is the right breakaway, like where to spend your your bullets, it's impossible to articulate because for every rule you make, there's an exception. You know, never go with the first move unless it's that stage where there's like a big climb coming and it's five K before the climb and like the field might hesitate and that's it.
0: And three crows flew across the sun and yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's total witchcraft at the end of the day. And and some riders are better at, you know, picking up those really minute details and signals than others. And that makes them good, you know, at getting into breakaways that doesn't necessarily make them good breakaway riders, right? Like it takes a certain type of engine to be a good breakaway rider also. But uh, I also think, that one of the sort of general rules is when you're suffering, everybody else is suffering for the most part. So, you know, as long as you're not on like a super bad day. And if that's the case, the move goes generally when everyone is gassed and goes, oh man, like I I can't go one more time. That's the one to go with. So, you know, like I would think about that a lot for the younger guys on the team that were a lot stronger than myself, like on a, on a breakaway where you're going to have to do it with, with some force, you know, like on a climb kind of situation. And I would always tell them, you know, like the minute that you feel like you can't follow any more moves, that's the one that will go.
0: What's a good batting average, so to say, in terms of getting into a breakaway? There, there's no way everyone's batting a thousand and getting it right. Well, we're talking 300s, like like in baseball, What what's a good batting average here? Oh
3: Man, I mean, if we're talking world tour racing, like in a stage race, for the riders that have the legs, they're way up there. I don't know anything about baseball. Better, but better than 50-50 for sure. Yeah. I mean, we're talking, if they have the legs and they want to be in there, I mean, we're talking
2: probably 70,
1: 80%. I was going to say, there are certain riders at the tour that when there's a breakaway, you know they're going to be in there. It's just every day they're there.
2: But, you know, again, some caveats. Like, what what's your goal in being the breakaway? Let's say you're going for the KOM jersey and you already have a 100-point lead. Every team is going to go, oh, he's going for the KOM jersey. Let him go. No big deal. He's already got it sewn up. Like, we don't have any vested interest in it. On the flip side, if there's a team who's, like, battling out for the green jersey and the points are close and, you know, one guy goes from one team, that other team's going to mow down that breakaway every time he's in it. So it doesn't matter how strong he is or how many times he jumps. It's a hard no. You don't want to be in that breakaway. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're a guy on another team, you're not going to follow that guy because you know that other team's going to chase it down.
3: Yeah. I mean, I would say, in general, if we're trying to find a breakaway, like, you want to look for... The riders who are not the strongest, but like sort of that second tier level, because your top, your top riders, everybody's going to follow them, you know, and their breakaways are going to be 5k from the line, right? Like they're, they're usually trying to win from the Peloton, but you have riders that are a little bit, a little bit lower down the rung, but still huge engines. And I mean, looking at past success rate, you know, like, especially on the local scene, you know, certain riders have been up the road a number of times throw tactics out the window and you just follow one person, you know, you think, okay, that guy's in the breakaway. Every other, every other race, I'm just going to follow them, you know? And that's actually a pretty common tactic in world tour racing. Like you'll have a director, especially with a young rider. It's like, okay, you have the legs today. Don't look at the other 178 riders. Like you just follow the Lusenko today. Like just, just do exactly what he does. You know, if he stops to pee and the breakaway hasn't gone yet, you're peeing also like that's all you're doing. <laughs> you just follow one person. And if he gets in the breakaway, which he probably, he's going to get in the breakaway 70% of the time. If he wants to be there, like you'll be in the breakaway too, or you'll be halfway across and cause you jumped too late,
2: but uh, at least you'll be in, going in the right direction. But <laughs> at bud. least you'll yeah. be trying. <laughs> yeah. One of the first things I would do on a, on a day when a breakaway is, you know, the team wants to be in the breakaway. It's important for us to be in the breakaway is, I'm going up to the front right before that neutral and I'm looking around, who's, who's sniffing? Who's sniffing for the break? And then I see a couple of riders that are like, those are the guys that are always managing to get in the break and they're strong and I've seen them strong in this particular race. I'm on the radio and I'm telling the young guys, these are the three riders to follow. These are the three riders that if they're up the road, you're up the road.
1: Let's hear from Dr. Inigo Samalan who coached two athletes to the tour podium this year. He's not the team's strategist, but he agrees that it can be as simple as watching just a few riders.
5: Yes, well, I, I mean, I, I try not to get much into that because that's more for the sports directors, right? And I don't want them to yell at me and, and I, don't, I don't have any, um, you know, especially with the pro levels, right? Um, but more amateurs, I, but I would just, if they ask me for advice, I think it's important to save energy. Uh, uh, positioning is everything, absolutely everything. You know, there are many riders who they spend a lot of time in the back of the peloton and they waste an amazing amount of energy. Um, If you, you know, if you want to be successful, you must be in the front of the peloton, uh, which takes experience. Uh, There are many riders who it takes elbows and fighting and yelling and, you know, and cussing. But, uh you, you need to get there right uh be in the front uh that's important the positioning and then also choose the right wheels right um sometimes and i was the first one who did that and i would uh, i would uh, respond to every attack because i thought that everybody was going to try to break her away and and i was gonna catch one but if you read races the you know cycling is it's it's quite easy in fact uh compared to other sports that that the tactics of cycling they are much easier than and most of sports because at the end of the day the ones who win are the same <laughs> for the most part most breakaways they don't they don't go anywhere uh, but for in the most uh, races are those three four five riders were the ones who you know that they're going to be at the end right so just follow their their wheels stay with them mark them and, and they will take you so that's kind of like uh, how I, I try to approach this if you will
2: generally speaking you have to risk losing to win right you cannot you cannot spend all of the bullets and then expect to have some bullets left at the end so you you have to play poker if you just put your hand down and right away everyone can see your cards and that's it you get your 10 bullets and you spend them and that's that
1: I was going to say going with the poker analogy if you're you're playing every single hand you're going to run out of chips really fast. You have to pick your hands and sometimes you pick wrong, but you you still have to pick. It's the same idea here, you'd say.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and knowing not just glancing at the cards in your hand, you know, but like really thinking about the cards you have and what may come down, you know, with other hands. You might have what looks like a losing hand at the start of the race, but some things play out and you know, you start to see a little bit what's going on in the table, and maybe your hand doesn't look as bad as it did at the start of the race, and vice versa. Sometimes you're thinking, Oh, I got a pair of aces. I'm I'm in great shape, but you know, some other teams got a full house. You're constantly reading the field, you're constantly reading the, the players.
1: So talking about that, how do you read the other players' faces? What sort of things are you looking for? <laughs> 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 oh boy, that's yeah, the tough you can, question. You
3: Yeah, you can't see this on a podcast, but Keel just dropped his shoulder. Uh, That's how you know Keel's getting getting a little ragged around the edges. Keel has great form, looks really good on a bike, pedals really nice, but like right around like 170 something beats per minute, he starts to starts to list a little bit, drop that shoulder, and it is funny because I mean, yeah, we've been doing a bunch of these gravel races, and you have a bunch of riders around that will get pissed because Keel doesn't want to pull anymore. And I can I can look at him and I mean his his shoulders basically touching the front axle.
0: <laughs> it's all the way down. But the,
3: he still looks he still looks great aside from that. And everybody's like, why won't you pull? And I'm like, look at the man. He's coming apart at the seams. He's, pretty, he's gonna have an aneurysm in the next three seconds. Like leave him alone. He's old. <laughs> <laughs> like he's just gonna say, yeah, but he's just gonna sprint. No, he's just sitting back there. Don't worry. He's <laughs> don't he's worry. He's thinking about what he's done with his life. Like, don't worry. <laughs> Poor decisions he's made. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't think faces tell you a lot. I mean, faces can be manipulated, right?
2: Yeah, they're easily manipulated. I mean, my grimace looks like a smile. <laughs>
3: yeah, not, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, Very confusing for people. Beautiful under pressure.
3: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to just watching how people are driving their bikes. Um, I mean, that's what I look for a lot of times. Like how quick their reactions are. Yeah, making subtle mistakes, how quick their reactions are especially like late in a race, you know, when, when small attacks are going, you know, you might have a rider with a good acceleration, but sort of delayed reaction time. And that can be an indicator of, you know, okay, they're, they're fast, but they're, they're under real pressure. You know, like they, they see something go and they don't register it immediately. And when they do, they, they sort of have that, like, Oh, are you serious kind of thought process going through their head before they, you know, kick it into gear yeah there's just a subtle leg yeah and watching watching riders how they handle their bike early in a race versus later in the bike or later in the race like you know how how well they're breaking and maneuvering the bike i mean those are things that are difficult to mask and you can you can really pull a lot out of that but you do have to pay close attention
1: so on that note i have a question for you guys because this is a situation i've been in a, a bunch of times And I'll share a quick story, mostly just for for humor value, but a steamboat stage race, I was in a breakaway with a couple riders and we had this kid that was basically just sitting on the back of us taking no pulls. And I could not tell if he was playing us or if he was just struggling. So there's a longer version of the story. I'll give you the short version. I went back to him and I thought relatively nicely, but enough to intimidate him a little bit, just said, you need to take some pulls and he ended up taking one pull. he basically broke and we dropped him five minutes later so he was definitely just struggling but later that day i ended up going to his hotel room because he was coincidentally staying with a friend and when he found out i was coming over he hid in the bathroom because he thought i was going to kill him <laughs> <laughs> you are such an intimidating figure trevor Conner. which uh, i don't remember saying it that badly but i guess i did but when you're in that situation, you're in a breakaway and somebody's not doing a ton of work, how do you read them? How do you tell whether they are playing you or they're just struggling?
0: Well, I do believe the direct quote was, you take some pulls, or I'm going to kill
3: you. So I think that's where he got the notion from.
0: Don't
1: remember saying that, but <laughs> it's possible.
3: <laughs> I mean, before we go there, I'll share one little story that might make you feel better. When I was 13 at the Tour of Gila, I had, had an older gentleman, a very strong rider sitting on, wouldn't pull, because let's be honest, it didn't make a lot of sense. There's only like four of us, but I think we actually stayed away. Anyways, we got towards the end, and he was just sitting on all day. And it's tour Hilo, so it's super hot. And we're going up the basically the last climb, and his, his poor wife or girlfriend or whatever who had been sitting on the side of the road for four hours to give him a water bottle, standing out there. She's got it right in the right spot. He's got his hand out. He hasn't had water in, like, two hours. And I sprint up in between the two of them and spike the thing out of her hand.
6: Oh, and I no. said, you
3: don't deserve water.
6: Oh, nice. <laughs> I was,
3: like, 13 years old, and I was like, you don't deserve water. You know, wow. and he was so mad at me. And he came up after, and I was like, prove me wrong, prove me wrong. You don't know? think like, you don't deserve water. So, you know, like, uh, yeah, the, Kids can be bad, too, you know. Um, so you, you, don't, you don't know if you're dealing with a, a young Alex House. You, you got to be a little intimidating sometimes, right?
2: Uh. <laughs> uh, you have to be thick-skinned to do this sport, too. Like, that, that's the only way you're going to figure it out is, you know, through experience. And I think where it gets really interesting in the pro peloton is you're trying to read people in that situation, but there's also the language barrier. So I love the one where you're going back to someone, you're like, come on, you, you got to take a poll, like, I've seen your hand, right? Like, I know you have no team leader back there who can win today. Your only shot is this breakaway. You got to help us out here and pull through. And they're like, no, uh, parlo italiano. And you're like, okay, let's switch to Spanish. And so you start talking Spanish, and they're like, no, no." you know, and like sometimes they're faking it, and sometimes like they really only know Russian. (laughs) That was oddly, oddly enough. And
3: yeah, World Tour Racing, that is a tactic, knowing which languages people speak. You try and start with that one if you know, you know, a bit of whatever. Because, like, yeah, running up to people in English straight away and, you know, calling them a doesn't always work well. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with Keel. You need to, ha- you need to have a bit of thick skin. And I, maybe a PSA to the world here, like the cycling world. But, like, ideally what happens in a race stays in a race, right? Like, this is our, you know, arena of sport where we're sort of allowed to pump up a little bit and act like idiots. That way, you know, when we get into rush hour traffic, we're not cutting off, you know, some old lady trying to get to the grocery store, which she shouldn't be doing in rush hour traffic, but that's, you know, a different conversation. (laughs) Yeah, like things that happen in a race should probably stay in the race, you know? Like when you get to the parking lot, okay, you can chat about it a little bit, but, uh, you know, punching it and, you know, kicking out people's headlights because they didn't pull through in the breakaway. It's like, come on, you know? you're, you're sprinting for, for a third place. And, uh, I don't know, a discount coupon to subway. Like there's, there's no reason to get that fired up about it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I can think of a couple of situations where Alex and I had to play each other. And if we brought that off the bike, that doesn't make for a good friendship. And so, you know, uh, the, the ability to, to do it in the race and then let it go is, is super important. And especially when you're doing it as a career, right? It's, it's a profession. So Be professional about it. And sometimes, you know, what you want for your friend isn't what your team needs. And, you know, the team's cutting your paycheck. So you have to play your cards and screw over your friend occasionally. So, but as your friend, you never forget it, you know? You
0: never forget <laughs> it. Yeah. I mean, how do you guys know that the other person's friendship is not founded on the long play to leverage you in the Peloton? I mean, Alex could be a mastermind, Keel, and he's just nefariously, like, biding his time to leverage your friendship. Yeah, it's a little too, a little too late, but
2: I think, <laughs> yeah. I mean, frankly, there's there's no one in the Peloton with that many brain cells. <laughs>
1: I was about to say, I got this sense here that you did something to Alex ten years ago, and he's playing the long game. Twenty years from now, he's getting his revenge. He's like, mmm,
3: <laughs> "Today's the day." Well, I mean, I, I can think of one, and I'm sure Keel was probably thinking about this as well. But Aspen, when when you made me lead that out, and uh, what is it, USA Pro Challenge? That stung a little bit, and you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I, I do, I do get satisfaction when you're chewing your stem. I look
2: back, and I'm
3: like, oh, yeah, well, you know. So, wait, what, now, what is this Aspen situation? What happened, what happened yeah. here?
2: What did we do? We hit the gas. We hit the gas on a little kicker in the final circuit. Yeah. Uh, and you initiated. I, I followed.
3: Yeah. You're a lemming. A
2: but leech. the cool thing about being friends is, like, once it was established, we didn't have to say a word. Right? Like, we didn't say a word that entire stretch. We immediately went to work. We knew what we had to do. We knew we had a shot. And so we both put our heads down and did exactly what we had to do. And that, that final bit where Alex was talking about leading me out, there were no shared words. It was not like, all right, you take it from the last corner, uh, or else, you know, like there, there were no, it was all really subtle body language. It was timing, you know, knowing when to pull so that you could pull off at a reasonable distance from the finish line. And the other guy wasn't going to look at you. It was knowing there was just enough pressure from behind I looked. or look. Yeah. Yeah. There's <laughs> definitely pressure
3: from behind. Gave a glance at you, and you just, and I was like, oh, you son of a bitch. You're going to make me do this, huh? Okay. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> Fine. Yeah, I mean, you can have whole
2: conversations with no words.
3: Yeah, there was, there was consolation there. I mean, I got a nice second. It was good. I wore the yellow jersey that, that race. That was cool. Yeah. And then I beat you on the last stage. So, yeah. you know,
2: all's well that ends well. I do believe, too, that prior to you taking the yellow jersey that day, I told you I'm not going to go. I'm not going to defend it. So mm, it was maybe it was me know. telling him you should I don't take those your decision though. take the opportunity. It was probably me <laughs> acknowledging the fact that I didn't have the legs to do it. But. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. Don't worry, we've done plenty of therapy. This is this is, so <laughs> this far is ended. small potatoes.
2: <laughs> yeah. I do remember the uh, the Red Rock stage, too, though, where we agreed we were both going to put all our team on the front and try and break it up the last Last lap before it went into the finishing circuit. I went up, showed up there with my whole team, went full, full bananas, and and then Alex was just sitting on my wheel and didn't didn't use up any of his guys. Yeah, sometimes you don't get a choice in that. Hmm. (laughs)
3: You you go talk to Robbie, (laughs) Robbie Hunter. He's
1: like, nope. If there's one message our guests have had about this poker game of cycling it's learn to read the other players. Let's hear that message one more time from coach Janis Muzin, who was asked how he teaches his riders to play the game. I ask questions.
0: <laughs> I ask a lot of questions. And first of all, of course, if they can't give you an exact answer, let's say uh, when the split happened or why it happened, it will instantly uh, give you an understanding uh, if an athlete is, is kind of able to read the field, or uh, he's really bad with his positioning and, and he's out of the back and he's not seeing anything that is actually happening and he's just a kind of a, a passenger in, in the train. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, usually, uh, it's usually asking questions. Why it happened? What happened? When it happened? Because of what? Yeah, in kind of this manner. Lactate threshold, metabolic profile, and VO2 max are key testing metrics for endurance athletes. Whether you live in Colorado or across the globe, you can get the benefit from inside scientific monitoring and physiological testing for performance and health. At Rocky Mountain Devo, we offer both in-person and remote testing. Contact us today at RockyMountainDevo.com.
1: So guys, as we're, we're starting to close this out here, let's shift to gravel. And you guys mentioned this briefly at the beginning of this episode that gravel is a little more who's just got the strongest hand. Any other thoughts on the the strategy for gravel?
2: Yeah, there really, there isn't much there. I mean, not only is it about just like who's stronger because so much of it is an individual effort. You're going slower speed. So there's less draft. You're spending a lot of the race just alone, you know, especially if you're me. And so like it, it's inherently more just what do you have in the legs, but there's also The sort of social pressures of how the race is supposed to unfold. So unlike a road race, it's not kosher to say, I'm going to use this guy because he's younger uh, or less experienced. Or, you know, like I know there's no team tactics either. Right. So you're not reading someone and saying, well, he's got a bank on his team leader coming back and winning the sprint. So like, I know he's not all in on this breakaway. And so a lot of the cards you could normally play, you can't. I mean, there, there are some obvious
3: differences, right? Like, bike handling does play a a role in some of these. Some of them are less bike handling dependent than than I would like. Uh, I think a lot of people would like, but uh, yeah, there's definitely somewhere it's like, okay, you need to look around. Who's gonna be good on this descent? Who can pull back a minute and a half in the technical bits? Like Russell Finsterwald, great guy, right? He's like, he'll get dropped on a number of climbs, and you think, oh man, Russell's having a terrible day. But the dude's got, like, 45-seat tires on, and he brings back two minutes on, on the technical stuff, and he's, like, right up in there with the leaders. And you're like, how the heck did he do that? So, I mean, he's he's playing his cards well. I mean, and, you know, he, he understands how to play that game with the mountain bike background versus us roadies. We pretty much just hold on for dear life on anything technical and then get dropped by Pete on the climbs
0: (laughs) on the gravel side of things. Is there a bit more of a right place, right time element, or do you think that's kind of equal between the road and gravel scene?
2: No, I don't think there's much right place, right time. I mean, you could, you could screw something up by being at the back of the group when you hit a technical section. But other than that, I, I think in a lot of ways, it sort of happens in slow motion because the speeds are so much lower and the draft is so much less, but equipment choices really are a good way to know what a rider's thinking perhaps.
0: So you're reading what tires they have on maybe some other things like you brought up Russell, you know, fat tires. And so technical stuff is where he's looking on the descent, but he might not be as fast in the climb versus somebody that's maybe running skinnier slicks.
3: You know, they're looking to drive on on the flat sections, so to say. Right. I do think that we're seeing more and more. I don't know if I'd say tactics, but yeah, like racecraft coming in in into gravel as the level is going up. I mean, a great example is Crusher. But last week, we got down into the valley and me being the old guy in the group was able to organize a pretty solid little group. And we we got rolling and, you know, we were chopping off and we, you know, we brought back probably a minute and a half on the group in front of us, which was by all means the stronger group. They weren't organized for whatever reason. And we just tapped away. I don't think anybody went over 250 watts and we just mowed them down we promptly got dropped by all of them again on the next climb, but still (laughs) just knowing (laughs) sort of how, how to make speed out there. You see that slowly coming in more and more to gravel and, you know, at the lower levels, that's something that, you know, as a coach, I see and talk to my athletes about, it's like, look, you have to be able to work with people and not just you be able to work with them, but you need to get them to work with you. And you need to grow that group as best you can and motivate the riders around you and get the free speed where you can get it because the rest of it's just going to be you hammering along staring at your front wheel and that's no fun. So get the free stuff where you can.
1: Does the poker game start in the parking lot? Are there things that you can be doing before the race even starts? To set yourself up. And that's, a, to me, a bit of a rhetorical question because I can tell you I did a lot of my strategy in the parking lot just going around talking to guys.
2: Rollers. <laughs> like when there's the uphill start and you're looking around and you can, there's only two people, two types of riders that are on the, the turbo trainer before the start or the rollers uh, when it's an uphill start. The team that's going to smash it and all the riders that are afraid. No one in between.
3: Yeah, we were on the rollers a lot,
2: weren't we, Keel? A lot, a lot.
3: Because
0: <laughs> <laughs> you were going to smash
3: it, of course. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, obviously. No, I mean you're absolutely right. Like it's okay. We you can leave the aggression uh, in the race, but um, yeah, the mind games. You know, that's a twenty four seven yeah twenty four seven game. I mean, yeah, in the world through a peloton, like we all know each other. Not you know, not buddy buddy, but like. I mean, I have a lot of world tour phone numbers and before races, you know, I'd be texting with a lot of people, you know, it's like, oh, what are you guys thinking for this? Or what's going on with that? Like, what's your director saying about this? Like, oh, you guys don't want to do that. Like, why would you, why would you guys want to do that? You know? And yeah, you can push that to the parking lot and be like, oh, what are you thinking for that? Or like, how's the training been going? Uh, oh yeah. My training's been going really well. I'm feeling super good. Or no, no, no. I mean, everybody makes excuses before races, right? That's that's kind of the cycling standard. You know, you show up to the start line, you have 15 reasons why why you're not going to win and you make sure everybody knows that before. And then you let, launch the race winning attack, hopefully. Yeah, I don't know. Chatting with people definitely helps because there's not a whole lot of chatting that happens mid-race, right? Not in depth.
1: Well, guys, always a pleasure talking with you. You know how we finish out this show Everybody gets a minute or two here for their their take homes. The the big salient thing that uh, you want our listeners to to get from the show. But I'll I'll offer an option here. You can either impart your your wisdom, or if you want, if you have a really great story of of some fantastic race strategy that you did in one race that you you want to share as an example, you can make that your take home. So I'll give you guys a choice. And and Alex, why don't we start with you?
3: Cycling is. There's so many layers to it, right? Um, tactically, there's you know there's the individual layer, there's the team layer, there's the day by day, there's the you know season long game, and just the more you can be involved in those different layers, and the, you know the more time you can spend racing, like playing the game, making mistakes, hopefully having some successes, watching races, talking to people about how things played out. The more you can understand about all of it, the quicker and better you'll learn. You know, I, the the best world tour tacticians start racing when they're 10 years old and they have, you know, the game hopefully mastered by the time they're 35. It's not something you learn overnight. So, it really just takes a ton of ton of time in the fire to figure it out. So, get at it.
1: Keel.
2: I think just that reminder of uh, you have to be willing to risk losing to win. And so that means that, you know, those days where you don't have the best legs, those days can be some of your best results because you have no choice but to risk losing. And being able to apply what you learn from those days to the days where you have good legs is is maybe one of the most you know valuable things you can do.
0: For me, Trevor, it's that being successful in racing, meaning a good finishing position, it takes active thought. Right. And um, if you're someone who it feels more like playing the lottery than playing poker, if you're someone who's buying a lot of tickets and never seems to win the jackpot, then it's probably because of a lot of the things that we talked about today. You're not taking a step back. You're not understanding the game. You're not understanding the race. And you're not making smart decisions. And so I think for people to be introspective uh, on how they're going and and to understand that the race is not one in the lab, right? It's not always about the strongest legs. There is this extra understanding hand that you have to play if you want to be successful, unless your legs are just golden magical legs, in which case go all in all the time.
1: So I'm going to basically... Finish with where I started, which I love that analogy of the idea that fitness doesn't guarantee you wins and races. Fitness just buys you a seat at the table and then you have to to play the game. And it's a complicated game. I was playing poker with my nephews just a couple weeks ago and I haven't played poker in years and discovered there's a lot of subtlety to it. And I didn't know any of it and I lost all my poker chips really quickly. and bike racing is the same thing you have to learn all those subtleties how to read people how to know when to make the moves and when not to make the moves and as you said when asked you know how do you know when what's the right move i've asked that question to to 50 different people and they all go i don't know it's a feel i couldn't describe it to you and i think that's part of it is you just got to do enough to to start to pick up on those little things well guys thank you always a pleasure having you on the show
3: thanks for having us pleasure chatting.
1: That was
0: another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Tweet at us at Fast Talk Labs or join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com. For Alex Howes, Kiel Reinen, Dr. Inigo San Milan, Janice Muslin, Jeff Winkler, Petter Vatchcock and Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.